This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking in the Gospels today. Um, I'm going to put most of the scriptures up on the screen because the story we're telling today, and we're in a series for our guests uh, this summer called Life-Changing Stories, and we asked the church, tell us your favorite Bible stories, and this was one of them that was submitted, and we've got 12 of them, I think, that we're doing this summer. Last Sunday, Andy came and taught on the uh, the story of the prodigal son, and uh, and that was a great, great, uh, great Father's Day message. Today, uh, we're looking at a story that's found all four Gospels tell the story. John, a little bit different details than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, I think it's interesting. Have you ever thought of this, that how many really, really, really super duper major moments in the Bible happened in gardens? Mankind's first sin happened where? In a garden. As we're going to see today, Jesus fights this battle in a garden, and then just a few days later, four days later, Jesus wins the ultimate victory in a garden tomb. So, so the gardens play significant roles in the scriptures for us. Um, the, one of the things I've titled this message, uh, History's Greatest War, and I know there are a lot of great wars in history, and I thought about some of them uh, that, that have been fought for, for freedom for other people. For example, the Civil War was the war to end slavery. World War I was called the war to end all wars. In fact, until the next war, World War II came along, World War I was called by everybody the Great War. Of course, when two came along and World War II came and, and they said, well, maybe this might be greater than the last one. And it became one and two was uh, World War II greater even in its worldwide scope and loss of life. And other wars have lasted for decades. For example, there was a war uh, called the Hundred Year War. It lasted from 1337 to 1453 between the English and the French, 116 actually years uh, that that war was fought. Some of our best-known movies, some of our uh, best-known heroes, some of our best-known monuments in this country are known for and named after great wars. Well, this is a story today about a war that started in a garden and ended in a garden tomb uh, thousands of years after the very first uh, battle began, uh, actually when this war began. But this one particular battle in this war of the ages happened in another battle, in another garden, and this battle only lasted about an hour. That was all the time that it took for this one to be fought. About, about an hour. It's found, I said, in all four Gospels, in Mark 20, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. We'll look briefly, if you want to open your Bible, to Mark's Gospel and look at a verse there in just a little bit. It took place after midnight, uh, this battle did, in this garden. After midnight, just outside the city walls of Jerusalem on a night when the city was in a festive mood, and they're in a festive mood because it's the holiday 
of Passover in Judaism when they remembered how God set their ancestors free from the grip of Pharaoh's power in Egypt and then they began their journey back to their their home. Well, Jesus had earlier in the evening celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples for the very last time. And and following that meal, he prayed a prayer for them and for us. You can read that prayer in John chapter 17. And then after that prayer, it says he led them outside the city. They went across a stream at the bottom. The city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, sits up on a hill and they they went down across a stream um, called the Kidron, through the Kidron Valley. And then they went up to a garden known as Gethsemane at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. Now it had been a long, long day. It had been a busy week because they'd been coming in and out of Jerusalem every day. You remember they started with the with um, with Sunday and all the crowd and the lined up on the streets and the triumph and so forth of Palm Sunday. It began then, but then it continued through the week in and out of town, teaching at the temple, uh, listening listened to by the Jewish priests as they became more determined than ever uh, to have him killed. Now, the Mount of Olives, just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, was one of their favorite places, the disciples and Jesus, to go. It was a place where they could camp. It was a place that they could sleep since they had no home. And it made sense that they were headed there again. We've had this long day, and tomorrow's Passover, let's, then we're going to go real close by to the Mount of Olives and get some sleep because they were so very tired. Above this garden, which was at the bottom of the hill, the Mount of Olives, above this garden, were olives grow, olive groves, which is why it's got the name Mount of Olives. And when olives are harvested, they were brought down to the bottom of the hill, to this location at the bottom of the hill, and they were put in a press and squeezed there to capture uh, the olive oil that was so vital to their, to their diet and so vital to their economy. So they found a secluded place in the garden, and Jesus told his disciples, sit here and pray. But then he took three of them, Peter, James, and John. He seemed to take them different places that he took, than he took necessarily the others on different occasions. They seemed to be the leaders. They were the ones, they were perhaps his best friends, the ones he counted on the most. He took those three and he said, I want you guys to come a little bit farther with me. And Mark records that as he took them away and then they stopped, Mark's gospel says he began, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and horrified. And I can imagine these guys, Peter, James, and John, wondering what in the world is going on. Most scholars believe that Mark's gospel, by the way, is based upon Peter's account, Peter's experiences with Jesus. So this was likely Peter's observation. He was distressed and he was horrified. Something horrible is bothering the master. In fact, Jesus said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Now, I've been troubled in my life. You have too. We have things that happen in our lives and they, you know, we have, we say something's going on and it's giving me knots in my stomach. You know, you ever had those experiences where you just all of a sudden don't feel so good because of something maybe unexpected that's come along, maybe some kind of a crisis. I've had those kind of things. I've cried and I've wept. I felt sick to my stomach in anticipation of something that I knew was coming, but I'll be honest with you, I have never been so distressed that I thought I was going to die. And that's where Jesus was. He was so distressed, he thought he was going to die. So he told his three most trusted friends, here's what I need you guys to do, Peter, James, and John. You stay here, I'm going a little bit farther, but you stay here and I want you to do two things. I want you to stay awake. Stay awake. 
and I want you to pray. Stay awake with me. But, you know, again, these guys have been up now for who knows how long because it's, it's midnight, after midnight. They've been up all day long, and they were exhausted. They've been walking. They've been climbing hills. They've been doing a lot of things. They've had a, had a nice big meal for the Passover. But Jesus went a little bit farther, and he got on the ground, the Gospels tell us, and he got down on his face. I know we have a lot of pictures of Jesus leaning up against a rock, you know, and he looks so so great in the stained glass window of pictures and so forth. But he, it says he got down on the ground and put his face down on the ground. And here's what he prayed. Here are his words. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. In fact, the gospels tell us a story says he prayed this three times. Same prayer, three times. Let this cup pass from me, but your will be done, not my own. Three times. It reminds me of when Jesus said, talked about praying to God. He says, hey, you need, to, you need to ask, you need to seek, and you need to knock. Three times Jesus prayed this prayer. And as he did all these three prayers, as he prayed them these three times, he was in so much anguish that Dr. Luke, who was a physician, records this, that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The intensity of his prayers, and again, I've never prayed anything in, with this much intense intensity, this much anguish. The intensity of his prayers caused the sweat to become like drops of blood. In the Garden of Eden, following his sin, Adam was told, remember one of the things, Adam was told a bunch of things after they sinned, but one of the things Adam was told was that from now on, you're going to get your food by the sweat of your brow. That was the beginning of the curse of sin, now the sweat of Christ reminds us of something. If you're taking notes, your first point is this. Because he paid it, it all, we can't earn salvation. This was not our sweat. This was his. This was not our blood. This was his. He paid it all. We can't earn it. Now, let this cup pass for me. What does that mean? Figuratively, in the Old Testament, cup was often used, and it was always used referring to wrath, referring to violent anger. Let this cup pass from me. And here it was a figure of the anger of God. Is God angry with Jesus? And the answer is no, he is not. He's angry and he was angry, not at Christ, but he was angry at our sin. You and me in this room, look around the room. He was angry at our sin. And the thought of drinking this cup, Jesus said, was so revolting to him, yet at the same time, he was totally prepared to drink it. Not my will, but your will. If this is what I have to do, this is what I have to do. You see, here he was, the holy, sinless son of God, and yet here in this garden, as he prayed, alone and horrified, This has to be, as I read this, this has to be the greatest example of Jesus being the God-man. Of Jesus being totally God and totally man. The human side of him, with all the same emotions that you and I carry, could not imagine bearing the sin of the world. And, more importantly, being abandoned on the cross, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that he could be made right with God through Christ. If there was to be a way 
of saving fallen humanity, including everybody in this room, Jesus had to drink this cup of becoming sin and having for the very first time and the only time in eternity the experience of being cursed by his own father. You ever been cursed by your father? You mean God the father cursed his son? That's what the Bible says. Where does it say that? Well, one place is Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Where did the law come from? It came from God. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because the scripture says, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. Cursed by his father because of our sin. You see, there was no plan B. No other cup, no other way around it. And when after an hour of prayer and spiritual wrestling, he rose to his feet, determined to, his, to complete his mission, finish the mission that he came, which was to seek and to save the lost. He knew the cross was just ahead. It's not far away. Tomorrow's Passover. Tomorrow's when the sacrificial lamb will be slain. And he knew all that that, that Old Testament sacrifice, that system of sacrificing and the, and the Passover lamb. And so he knew it all pointed to him. He knew it was all a, a, a picture of what he would come to do, and he knew tomorrow would be the day. By 4 p.m., the next day, he would be dead, and he would be quickly taken down from the cross and buried. He, he knew this in the garden. It wasn't just suspicion. He knew this was coming. In a few minutes, he would say to Peter, who had made a poor attempt to defend him with a sword, he would say to him, Peter, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me. Peter, please understand, this is why I'm here. You can't stop it. His prayers, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. His prayers were answered. He prayed this prayer about the cup, as I said, three times. Mark tells us that the second time he prayed it, he used a, a word that only Mark gives us in his account of Jesus' prayers. And that's the word, Abba. It was a family word for father in the Jewish culture. That's what you called your dad, Abba in Aramaic. But it wasn't a word that the Jews ever used to talk to God. That meant a relationship with God that was so personal, they would have considered it inappropriate. You can never approach God with words like that. By the way, the Bible says now, because we belong to Christ and we're in his family, the book of Romans says now we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. We have that kind of relationship with him. And Jesus did. So Peter must have heard this prayer. And maybe he heard something very strange and unique, Abba. I doubt that it was the first time that Jesus used that word. Maybe he used it all the time in his private prayers because God the Father and Jesus the Son had kind of that kind of relationship. And, and so now it makes sense in, that now in desperation, Jesus, the second time he prays, is like a child pleading with his father to do something. Pleading with his father. His heart was broken by the fact that this relationship, this cup that he would drink would cause this relationship that he has with his Abba, with his father, to be disrupted, even if temporarily, as God judged our sin on him. And his heart was broken. Please, please, Dad, if I can paraphrase his words. 
And in that moment, as he was nailed on the cross the next day and the sky turned black with darkness, do you remember his words? Remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, our communion table is set today, and we have bread to eat and a cup from which to drink. And these guys, these disciples, these 11 men with Jesus had just hours before shared a cup around a table, and he told them that the cup they held, remember what he said, this cup is the new covenant. This cup represents my blood. This cup is the new covenant, the new deal that God is making with us, if you will, that now you can come freely to him through me. Salvation is possible through his shed blood. And, and he told them that night, he said, I want you to be sure that you remember me. I wonder sometimes if I'm not guilty, I can't speak for you, but I don't know that I'm all that different from most of us in the room. I wonder sometimes if I'm not guilty, I think maybe I am, I've at times observing communion without taking a serious look within myself. My mind's elsewhere. I got things to do this afternoon, after church, this week. And so as the cup and the bread go by, I just grab it, pick it, and I don't really take time to look within. If it ever becomes something, Christian, in your life or in mine, where we just kind of just tack this on to the end of a service to say, I went to church and I did it, so I must be good with God. If we ever get to that point, we really are missing something. And so we're going to approach the Lord's table a bit differently. And our band's going to play an appropriate song as our ushers pass out the bread and the cups. But here's what we're going to do differently. Band, you can come on up. Here's what we're going to do differently. We're not going to participate. We're not going to eat the bread and we're not going to drink the cup. I want you to hold on to them. And think about what you're holding in your hands as you listen to the song, as you listen to the rest of this message this morning. So ushers, if you'll come right now and, uh, and distribute the, the bread and the cup. So as they're making their way up to Gethsemane, Jesus and the 11, Jesus said something surprising to them in Matthew 26, verse 31. This is what he said to them. Tonight, all of you will run away from me, run away because of me, because it's written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Well, Peter didn't like that. What do you mean? No man wants to be called a coward. And he just said to all 11, you're cowards. You're going to run away because of me. And he didn't like that. And before all of the other disciples and Jesus, Peter promised, hey, I'm going to tell you one thing. I will never do that. Even if it means I die with you, I will not run away. I will never deny you, Peter said. And all the others, the scripture tells us, they all agreed. Amen, right? We're with Peter. And this was less than an hour before his arrest. And then he promised them, but, here's, but guys, hang on. I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. And then I'm going to go ahead to Galilee and you're going to meet me there. And maybe they missed those words. Maybe they were still fixated on the other words that they're going to run away and it's something they just in their minds eye they couldn't imagine. But he promised them hope. They just kind of went in one ear and out the other. Do we ever respond to Jesus' words like that? Jesus then told Peter, Peter, 
not only are you going to deny me, you're going to deny me three times in the darkness of the pre-dawn morning. And Peter, if you read the, the account, Peter essentially said, you know what, Jesus, you're wrong. You're wrong. By the way, it wasn't the first time that Peter argued with the Lord. It's really interesting that I think in, in the story, Jesus prayed three times. Three times he went and found Peter, James, and John asleep when he had asked them, please stay awake, please pray with me. And three times he went back to them and they were sleeping. And then before the, next, the sun rose the next day, Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three why did he want them to stay awake? Why was, I mean, didn't Jesus care that these guys are really, really, really tired? They're exhausted after this long day. Why did he, was it necessary for them to stay awake? And I think the answer must be, go back to that part that I said earlier, that Jesus was 100% God and at the same time, 100% man. He was human and he was divine. And I believe that in his humanity, Jesus wanted his friends praying for him. I think that was part of his humanity. He needed their support as a man. There's nothing wrong, Christian, with asking others to pray for you, especially if you're in a time in your life when you're being pressed by life. Gethsemane, by the way, the word Gethsemane is a word that means olive press or oil press. That's what the word means. He was being pressed by this cup that was before him, and he said, I need you guys to pray with me. There's nothing wrong with a Christian asking for others to pray. In fact, for a Christian not to ask for prayer is a symptom of pride that says, no need, I can handle this on my own. But God has designed, for us as Christians, he's designed the local fellowship of the church to be in our team of praying friends. Let me just say this kindly. I read something from a friend of mine on Facebook yesterday. He doesn't go to church believes in God. And he sent out a thing in Facebook asking for prayer for something. And that's okay. And, and we do that. But here, here, you know who God's given to us to pray for us? One another in the body of Christ, in the, in the church. Facebook is, if Facebook is your church, you're going to the wrong place. All right, can I say that again? If your church is Facebook, then you know, you're missing out on, on all the things that a local body of believers can provide for you. Uh, God gives us the local fellowship of the church to be our team of praying friends, especially your connection group. So if you're a Christian and you're not part of a church, come on, why not? And if you're in a church but you're not part of a small group of friends who pray together, you should be. Well, who is Jesus' congregation? Well, it had been 13, now it's him and 11 others. His small group, however, was in included. It was just four, him and Peter, James, and John. And on several occasions, I said earlier, like this, he had separated them from the rest to reveal something very special to them, whether it was his glory when he was transfigured, and they briefly saw him as he is today in heaven, or when they witnessed him raise a dead girl back to life, and now he's counting on these three men to support him in prayer, but they failed him. Three times he went to them. Mark chapter 14, verse 41. And then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, he said. 
The time has come, and look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. The time has come. He was ready. He was drinking from the cup. You see, coming into the garden from the city of Jerusalem was a mob led by Judas. It included some temple police. It included, the scriptures tell us, a company of soldiers, Roman soldiers. And, you know, I've always thought, and you see in all the movies and the pictures, you see a, a crowd of, you know, who knows, maybe 10 or 12 guys coming up with, you know, clubs and torches and lanterns, maybe some swords to take Jesus. The scripture says it was a company of Roman soldiers. So I said, well, how much is a company? And the word here for company referred to a legion, or not a legion, but referred to um, a company or um, a detachment, which was one-tenth of a legion. That means it was up to 600 soldiers who came from Jerusalem. Why so many? Well, surely they have been, they have been told, uh, this guy, he's trying to overthrow the government. He's trying to overthrow Rome. He hates Caesar. He's getting ready to cause an insurrection, a rebellion, a civil war. They may be armed and dangerous. You need to take all you've got. So they sent a company. They had weapons. They had clubs. They had lanterns. And they must have come expecting a fight. And for the exception of one man, Peter, they got none. Judas betrayed Jesus by giving a kiss on the cheek. And in their culture, in the Jewish culture, a kiss like that was a common gesture of affection. It was a gesture of showing reverence uh, as it was given by a disciple to a rabbi. But Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. Remember during the, the Last Supper, he excused Judas, and he said, what you have to do, you go ahead and do, get it done. And that's when Judas went to the priests in the temple to betray him. He knew that Jesus would betray him. It was no surprise to him at all. You see, but sometimes I think we, maybe we think things about Judas yeah, I mean, I said a couple of weeks ago as I did the story of, of Elijah and the Mount Carmel and bringing the fire down from heaven. Remember what I said about Jezebel? I said, you know, no, nobody names their daughter Jezebel. Nobody names their son Judas, do they? But Judas was, Judas, I don't think Judas was anything different from us. He was not an unusual monster, but he was a common man caught in a common sin. For him, it was greed. And Satan used that sin in his life to accomplish his purpose. As they approached Jesus and they stopped, Jesus said, who are you looking for? Of course he knew the answer, and the answer came back from them. Jesus, the Nazarene. That refers to Jesus' hometown where he grew up in Nazareth. Jesus, the Nazarene. And an amazing thing happened. John's gospel, I believe it is, John tells us he answered with two words. He said, I am. Am. Now, if you look in your Bible, it'll say, I am he. But you'll notice the word he is probably in italics because it's not there. in the. He just said, I am. And when he said those two words, the scripture tells us that the soldiers stepped backward and fell to the ground by the power of his name. But he didn't say his name. He said, I am. Remember when Moses asked the voice that was speaking to him from the burning bush up on the mountain in the wilderness 
This bush says, you're going to, the voice says, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to demand to Pharaoh that he let my people go. And Moses said, okay, well, who are you? What is your name? Who do I tell him has sent me? And he said, I am that I am. That's my name. It's a Hebrew word there. It only has consonants in it. It's the unpronounceable word to the Jewish people. But we transliterate it and it comes out in our pronunciation as either Yahweh or Jehovah. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying the same God who spoke to Moses, you go set my people free, is me. That was me speaking to Moses. I am. They fell back to the ground. I mean, nobody's ever fallen down to the ground when I've said anything to them. How about you? He identified himself to the soldiers and the power of his name knocked them to the ground. While they're on the ground, (laughs) I'm reading this between the lines because it doesn't say they got up and I'm assuming they're still on the ground. And he looked down and said, who was it again that you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. And he again told him, I told you that I am. It's part of his surrender. He asked that they not arrest his disciples. Let these guys go. You're after me. They've not, they've not done anything wrong. Let them go. But he questioned those who came to arrest him, and he, especially, I guess, the contingent from the temple. He said, you know, I don't understand. I've been in Jerusalem every day this week. I've been openly teaching in the temple, in public. Right? I've not been hiding. I've not been underground. I've not been doing things from dark rooms somewhere in the corners of the city. I've been in the temple teaching every week, and you've had every opportunity to confront me, every opportunity to arrest me there, but you haven't. You've chosen to arrest me in the the middle of the night, in the darkness, in a garden. He was exposing their hypocrisy. Luke 22, 53, when he said, but but here's, here's the answer to why you're not doing this. This is your hour and the dominion of darkness, which was a reference to Satan. Uh, By Jewish law, by the way, his arrest was illegal. By their own law, they were breaking the law, arresting Jesus at night, because they weren't allowed to arrest someone in the darkness, in the night. That was against the law. And another reason it was illegal was because the accuser, Judas, had been paid off to witness for his testimony. So there were no legal grounds to arrest to try and then to execute Jesus because he had done no wrong. And so about, scholars tell us, about 2.30 in the morning, he was led from the garden to be crucified later that morning. Well, another detail in this story is that Peter had brought a sword. Peter, now you know, Peter was no Zorro. Peter was a fisherman. But he brought a sword that he held, had a sword, tells us very simply, Peter suspected the possibility of trouble. In fact, Jesus had just told them earlier that evening, Luke chapter 22, verse 36, hey, when you guys go out on the road and you're traveling, it's dangerous out there. And it was. Criminals abounded on the, on the roads and, and they would attack people. Remember the story of the good Samaritan and the man who was beaten and robbed. He said, when you guys go out... Defend yourselves. Carry a sword. You need to. Because the outlaws are out there. And apparently not only did Peter have a sword, because apparently one of the other guys did. He just didn't draw it out. He didn't pull it out. Because they said, 
we, when he said to them, take a sword, they answered back, we have two with us. Peter's zeal and loyalty to Jesus, loyalty to Jesus to use that sword. He took that sword and he went for the, the, the servant of the high priest, a man by the name of Malchus, and he cut off his ear. I, I, my guess is that he was aiming for decapitation, but he wasn't a good aim. Uh, Luke, the physician, again, Luke focuses in on a lot of these kind of physical details, sweat like drops of blood, and Luke, the physician, gives us the detail that even when he was being captured, which would lead to his crucifixion, Jesus had compassion and Jesus had forgiveness, and he demonstrated that by reaching down. I guess he picked the ear up off the ground and he put it back on Malchus' head, and he was healed. He restored it even to his enemies. But Jesus chided Peter, saying, I, I, you know, Peter, I don't need your defense. And he told them, he said, God could have sent 12 le- legions of angels to defend me if that was his will. A legion, what was that? Well, I told you that a, a company of soldiers was one-tenth of a legion or up to 600. So a legion is up to 6,000 Soldiers, or in this case, Jesus said God could have sent 6,000 angels, or actually he says 12 legions, 72,000 angels to protect me if that was his will. One interesting thing, by the way, is that while Jesus was praying, and, and it's recorded that he sweat these great drops of blood, the scripture tells us God did send one angel to him to encourage him, to strengthen him, it says but not 72,000 to defend him. And we ought to thank God that he didn't. It wasn't God's will for him to be rescued. It was God's will for him to drink this cup. But, you know, I'm like Peter. Are you like Peter sometimes? Sometimes we react in emotion, and it causes us to say and do things that are out of God's will. You ever do that? Anger? I mean, Peter was, we could say, yeah, but he was just defending Jesus, but he acted wrongly. We, we have to learn to be controlled, not by our emotions, but by the Holy Spirit. Remember when mom used to say, count to 10, you know? We have to learn to let God control us, not our emotions. And here's, here's I think here's one of the lessons that I've learned from this story. Pete, had Peter been praying instead of sleeping, maybe he wouldn't have done this. Can I say that again? Had Peter spent his time praying rather than sleeping, maybe he wouldn't have done this. God's not looking for protection from you and me. You know what he's looking for? Our prayers. That's what he wants from us. And as Jesus had said that evening, he said, you, you strike the shepherd, you scatter the sheep, and they did, they fled in fear for their lives. But Peter, it says, followed at a distance In other words, he was close enough to see where they were going, but he was far enough away not to get caught. So while Jesus agonized, the disciples slept. So question for us this morning, how how common is it for us to allow the physical to overcome the spiritual in our lives? How about for you and for me? How common is it for me to allow the physical to overcome 
the spiritual in our lives. How often in our lives does the flesh overcome the spirit? It's when we're controlled by the physical. Hear me now. It's when we're controlled by the physical that we sleep through the most important spiritual opportunities. And I'm using sleep symbolically. I realize we're not sleeping through everything. But I'm using sleep as a physical thing. God wants you and me to participate with him. But the wants and sometimes even the needs of our flesh find us doing other things. And those other things might seem at the time, this is very important. Sleep is important, isn't it? Fun. It's important to have fun. Working extra. Able to work a little few more hours and earn a little extra income. is important at the time. But how often do we do what seems important at the time knowing that we might be missing something that's important for all time and eternity? Here's the battle. This great battle. This great war. The war that was fought in those few moments in the garden. See, Jesus wound up arrested, tortured, and murdered. Yet he won the battle. The disciples wound up well-rested, and they ran from the garden free men. But they lost the battle. And I wonder if part of the problem with our world today is evil seems to be constantly triumphing. I wonder if part of the problem today in our world, and a lot of us are very concerned about what's going on in our world, and very concerned that Christianity seems to be coming under attack as we read things happening in the news, not just here in this country, but around the world. I wonder if part of the problem is because the church is well rested, but we haven't been awake. When we should be awake, we're indulging our physical wants. We're sleeping. We haven't prayed. We've given in to temptation. And we're losing the battle because the physical is more important at the moment than the spiritual. Has it become in your life, has it become in mine, that the temporary is more valuable to us than the eternal? Would you bow with me? Maybe you've been like the disciples. Maybe in your life there was a time when you were so passionate about following Christ that nothing got in your way. Nothing. But now you find yourself easily tempted to fall into things that overcome that passion for Jesus. And in your daily walk, you find yourself frequently denying him. Today, your next step might be going back to where Jesus was the greatest passion of your life. How much shame did these disciples bear as they ran and hid? Heavenly Father, we hold in our hands remembrances of your son Jesus, remembrances of the, of the cup that he drank from as he became our sin, as he was pierced in his body on the cross. 
as he bore the shame, but more importantly, Father, as he bore your wrath, as you poured out your anger upon of our sin, for our sin upon your only begotten son, and you turned your back on him, and the sky grew black, and the earth shook. And he cried out to you. He knew the answer. But it was so much, so much more. We thank you that he bore that sin. Making it possible for us by faith in him to have everlasting life, to have forgiveness from you, to have reconciliation with you, to have a relationship now with you whereby we can call out to you, Abba, Father. We thank you for the communion. We thank you for this privilege to remember. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.